You're in the water loop. Hey, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to tell you a story about High Sierra Showerheads, who I'm proud to have as a sponsor of this podcast, particularly because they make incredibly water-efficient showerheads. I've talked with owner David Malcolm about growing up in California, learning about the importance of water and energy efficiency from his father. David has been designing high-efficiency nozzles for agriculture and golf courses for the past 30 years. The golf course people actually came to him wanting a nozzle that produced a uniform spray but was water efficient. So David went in and designed a nozzle that explodes a low-pressure stream of water into a shower of large, powerful droplets. David actually thought, this would make a great showerhead, and that's how High Sierra Showerheads was born. And nobody has their nozzle technology. It's patented, and you get a great shower while saving water. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Hurricanes, we heard a lot about them this year. It was an incredibly busy season uh, in the Atlantic. I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Rick Lutick. He is the director of the Institute of Marine Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, it sure was a busy season, right? I don't, I don't. We got into the Greek alphabet with uh, with storms and and just saw incredible activity. I think it was a record where there was a certain number in the, uh, where they're going at the same time in the Atlantic. Uh, you all were busy looking at that. It's it's been a historic season, and it hasn't given up yet. We've got <laughs> uh, you know still uh, you know New Orleans is looking at uh, at a substantial storm coming at it at the end of the week. So, mm. um, that, yes, it has been a, it has been a historic season for sure. That, that's right. I, I forgot. I saw that as well. I feel we're both in North Carolina. We're on the Carolina coast. I'm here in Wilmington. You're up, up in Moorhead city. I kind of feel like, okay, when you get to October, we're generally safe here in the Carolina coast. I know it's hurricane season, but the ocean's cooling a little bit. Is that premature on my part? Well, uh, it, it, it certainly is. Uh, for example, Hurricane Sandy came through towards the end of October, and that, that was clearly a major event. I know I told my daughter when she wanted to get married that uh, it was fine uh, to get married here in, in coastal North Carolina for 10 months of the year, just not between the middle of August and the middle of October. Mm. Uh, and and so um, so you're right. As as we get into October, we think these things will will wane, and 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 historically they do because uh, the ocean just starts to cool down a little bit, and the fuel for these storms uh, starts to go away. Yeah. So you you do a tremendous amount of study hurricanes, and I'm really curious to hear more about uh, the role that climate change is playing. Uh, in in hurricanes, in their frequency, in their intensity, and just kind of what the science is behind that knowledge. We hear that pretty often. Um, of course, there's a lot of deniers out there. I don't even like to say skeptics, really. There's a lot of deniers. So I'm curious how we know that climate change is, is part of the equation. Yeah. Well, we know a lot about hurricanes and how they operate. And one of the things that we know is, is that they get their energy from the ocean, from the warm waters of the ocean. 
Um, and so anything that leads to a warming of the surface of the ocean uh, is just simply adding fuel to the to the potential for storms. And, and so that's one of the primary signatures we see of climate change is warming of the surface of the ocean. And we can measure that from satellites. We can measure that from ships. We have, you know, a very good data on what the surface of the ocean temperature looks like. So, uh, so you're providing more fuel for these storms. Now, um, that has some subtleties to it. Uh, one is um, it just simply makes it easier for the storms to get stronger than they normally would. And so the science is telling us that it looks like today we're seeing stronger storms than we saw a few decades ago. And in the future, we'll continue to see storms strengthening. Um, another thing it tells us is, is that storms can be strong further north than they not normally would have. And in fact, the Genesis region that where they, where there's enough energy, there's enough stuff going on that they can even get started is starting to move north a bit. Uh, and so for, uh, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, they're worried just because the storms are stronger, but as you start to work your way up the East coast, then I think there's concern that that strong storms now have the ability to penetrate further north and impact a larger section of the coast of, of, of the U.S. And of course, North Carolina is kind of in that intermediate area where uh, it's not uh, it's not getting what necessarily Florida and, and the Gulf states might be getting, but uh, but it certainly uh, is in an area that's uh, within Hurricane Alley. And so if storms are stronger as they get further north, then, then, it, then North Carolina can expect to see more stronger storms uh, in the future. Uh, another thing that climate change is doing is it's warming the atmosphere, and a warmer atmosphere can hold more water. Mm. And so um, that means the storms are getting wetter. And so now we're not just how strong the wind is and maybe how, how much storm surge they generate. But now it's how much rainfall they may have associated with them. And so we're seeing, again, strong evidence that we're getting wetter and wetter storms. And so we're worried about the storm surge from the ocean. But now we're, we're seeing storms that are dumping more precipitation in coastal areas and, and inland, for that matter, and therefore having a, kind of a, a, a twofold, a double whammy, if you will, from both the ocean and from the precipitation. Uh, another thing that climate change does is, is that it's definitely causing sea level to rise. And so now, whereas uh, in the past, uh, a, a storm surge of a certain amount may not have reached the top of the dunes, it may not have reached the, the first row of homes, it may not have reached, um, you know, your particular residence close to the ocean, um, with rising sea level, um, the water is just simply starting off higher. And so that same amount of storm surge now is closer and closer to um, to downtown streets, to homes, to to infrastructure. And, and, and as a result, um, even the same storm uh, now can do more damage than it had than it than it would have in the past uh, just due to sea level rise. So all of these things are conspiring to make these storms more dangerous. Um, more hazardous uh, as the climate is warming. 
That's what I was going to say. You have this kind of triple whammy, I guess, going on where the storms are stronger. Uh, they can carry more precipitation. And then you've got the sea level rise. So that storm surge can be more more devastating, if you will. It's incredible. And so you were saying that the area where they, they generate, you know, off the coast of Africa there, because of the warmer waters, they're able to even generate further north, or even as they're working across the Atlantic, they can stay viable and strong and hit more northern states like Virginia or Maryland in the, in the future, presumably. Exactly. And so Florence was a good example of that. Florence actually started fairly far north. And of course, living in eastern North Carolina, mm -hmm. we felt, you know, we took the brunt of Florence, but it was a storm that largely made an east to west track, but it made that track fairly far north. It was north of the Bahamas, for example, instead of down closer to the, to the equator and coming across through the Caribbean and then making the curve up along the, the Caribbean islands. This storm was fairly far to the north. Uh, and it came uh, due east or due west uh, for the most part, northwest a bit, but but straight at us. So good example of a storm that was that formed further north than tradition. And I, in fact, I think Florence set a record for being the strongest storm as far north as it was uh, when it was out to sea. Now, fortunately, it um, it d diminished as it approached land, so that was good for us. But while it was out to sea, it was a very strong storm. And, and further north than we have historically seen those storms. Well, and that was one of the ones that dumped a ton of precipitation. Uh, it it kind of stalled out, and so it rained here in Wilmington for days. For days. Um, yeah. Morehead for, City, not quite as bad, but we certainly felt the pain. <laughs> And, you know, the, the rainfall with Harvey in, in the Houston area was was incredible as well. Just record-setting rainfalls, as far as I'm, I'm aware. Incredible. One of the things you really specialize in, in is storm surge. Um, for folks that might not know as much about storm surge, and, and even for my education, could you explain a little bit more about what storm surge is? Sure. Uh, storm surge, somewhat simply, is, is the change in water level. Uh, due mostly to the winds that occurs, uh, a, a, that accompanies a storm. And so those that live along the coach or, coast are, are used to going to the, to, the, to the beach and seeing the tides uh, be high or low, seeing waves come in and, and break along the shore. And, and those are kind of normal things. Uh, when the wind, when a storm comes along, and this can be a, a, a strong uh, winter storm as well as a, a hurricane, uh, it blows water uh, either directly out in front of it or off to the right-hand side in the, in the, um, in the northern hemisphere. Uh, and that water then has to go somewhere, and it piles up against the shore. It piles up uh, against the coast, uh, against the dunes, but it also finds its way into the estuaries and, and, and the rivers. And in those cases, it can get funneled, so it can start in a wide area, but as it moves inland, it gets constricted. And, and in all cases, as the water gets pushed on the shore or towards the shore, it really doesn't have anywhere to go other than up and over the land. And so uh, storm surge really, for the most part, is, is just that impact, the, the effects of those strong winds blowing on the water and blowing it against the shore, onto the shore, and into the um, the shoreline features uh, of our estuarine systems. What, what's been some of the most damaging storm surge that people um, might have heard of the past bunch of years with these storms? I mean, Sa Sandy one that really uh, had 
had big storm surge or? Well, um, you know, I think it, I think these storms have, uh, have are, are probably generational in terms of their, how, how they're, um, uh, how they show up in the public knowledge. And certainly those that are old enough uh, know uh, the, the storms that hit um, the Wilmington area, Cape Fear area, Hazel back in, in the late 50s. That's a kind of a seminal storm of record. Um, definitely, again, from North Carolina, uh, Floyd and Florence, uh, Floyd uh, and Fran in the late 90s were, were major uh, impact storms. And more recently, sort, certainly Florence in our memory is, and, and some of the other ones, Matthew as well. Um, it, when you go more on a national scale, I think the one that, that, that really was transformational was certainly Katrina in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And the, the impacts that that really had uh, on the on on just simply the public recognition of, of what uh, what these storms can bring uh, and and just a whole variety of, of social issues as well as engineering issues and and coastal hazard issues. Katrina was just just, uh, you know, seminal in that regard. And then Sandy, certainly because it hit such a major um, metropolitan area of, of the greater New York City area and 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 the impacts that it had there. Uh, all of these are, are clearly seminal storms um, and with a bit of, of sort of regional uh, emphasis. And, uh, and, and these are the kind of the ones that, that, that certainly our generation uh, thinks about uh, as, as, as you think about these events. And Harvey as well. I think Harvey was uh, quite, quite. And of course, if you live in Puerto Rico, you, you really think a lot about Maria. Right. And so uh, each of these areas have had uh, amazing uh, events, really, in, in not that distant past. You you study storm surge, as I mentioned. What what areas of the East Coast uh, or in the Gulf of Mexico are most vulnerable to storm surge? Are there are there certain pockets or certain areas that are that are really vulnerable, and if so, why? Well, um, so a couple couple of things, of course. Um, in order to have storm surge, you got to have storms. <laughs> so the areas that are that that see the greatest number of storms are are the are obviously the ones that that uh, have to worry a lot about storm surge. Um, and you know the Texas coast, the Louisiana coast, the Florida coast in the Gulf, and then really the coast of North Carolina along the Atlantic coast are are the ones that that historically have seen the most storms. So those are the ones that. That, uh, that worry about this perhaps the most. Um, storm surge is greatest when the water is shallow. And so essentially you can think about it is it's, a, it's easier to pick up shallow water than it is deep water. So for example, around the Hawaiian islands or the, even some of the Caribbean islands that are, that are uh, relic volcanoes and things, uh, steep sides. And so the exact same storm coming through those areas will have less storm surge than it will in a shallow uh, uh, area like the, the, Gulf, the Gulf Coast uh, and areas of the East Coast of the United States. Um, and so those areas uh, become susceptible to storm surge. Uh, areas that have estuaries that sort of project inland and that are funnel-shaped, uh, the Cape Fear River qualifies in that regard, but uh, also, say, the Noose River and the Tar River in, in North Carolina, and a variety of a variety of, uh, of riverine river estuarine systems, again that are kind of funnel shaped, 
allow the water to come in the mouth. And then as it propagates upstream, it gets squeezed down laterally. And so it has to go up uh, vertically. And then- I was going to say, I used to live in Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, I know people were always worried about hurricanes and their impacts in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, just kind yep. of pu- pushing up and, and doing having that exact effect. Exactly. And I, I think uh, it was Isabel that had a fairly major effect up in the upper part of the, the Chesapeake Bay for exactly yep. that reason. Yep. 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 Uh, and then the other, the other part of storm surge that makes it uh, so problematic are areas that simply where the land is very close to the ocean level. And so that have low relief. And, and again, Eastern North Carolina, particularly the Northern half of the state of North Carolina and around the, around the sounds around Pamlico sound and Albemarle sound, the lands in those areas are very low, very flat. Uh, and so it doesn't take much storm surge to go from the water being in the traditional water bodies to where it's up on the land and flooding the areas and, and the people that, that live there. So, uh, and, and a lot of the Gulf Coast is similarly flat and, and, as, and you know, a lot of the southeastern United States uh, and Gulf Coasts are flat, low topography. And so all of those areas are the areas. So you kind of, again, have the triple whammy of shallow, shallow coastal waters, um, you know, susceptibility of, of, the, of the storms being there, and then uh, low relief topography, making it fairly easy for the water to propagate up onto land. And I always think about those outer banks, you know, um, <laughs> they're barrier islands, so they are you know, ever shifting and moving anyway, and they're so narrow and low lying and uh, just sticking out there like a bullseye. And I, I always wonder about their future, you know, with sea level rise also, it's like, ooh. I think tough. we all do. I mean, you know, the day will come when it's hard to continue to just get bulldozers out there and rebuild Highway 12 mm-hmm. and, and continue to try to <laughs> – to pile the sand into dunes and, 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 and hold on to that area. And, and, and it won't all go at once, but there are certainly lower and higher spots along them. And, uh, and the lower spots, boy, when hurricane Dorian came through last year, um, something between 58 and 70 some odd inlets were formed along core banks, Mm. overwash areas, where um, where the water actually penetrated between the sound and uh, and the ocean, wow. and many of those have filled back in. But that's just an example of how low lying those areas are, and how easier and easier it is for those areas to become overwashed. And uh, and again, now you know core banks is is natural, and the, you know it's it's not inhabited other than some fishing camps and things. Uh, which were were substantially impacted, but um, but in the areas that are not as engineered and not as as put back, if you will, you're just simply seeing the evidence of that occurring. And so now go further north to to Hatteras and and uh, Ocracoke and and uh, you know those islands, and it simply will be harder and harder to continue to maintain them into the future. Yeah. At some point there's, there's policy and community decisions about how much and how long you're going to fight nature and, and do that. Uh, speaking of which, one of the other things, you know, 
in studying storm surge, there's there's a lot of science that goes on. I think there's a lot of modeling that that goes on, and I'm really curious about that field of work and what's happening in that area, and then how can that be used to help communities make decisions uh, about resiliency and so forth. Well, that's the exact area that I work in, and so for. Um, most much of my career here at UNC, I've been working with with other colleagues around the United States, in particular, to develop better models that uh, predict how the coastal ocean waters move. And in particular, uh, we've we have uh, really advanced the modeling to predict how they how the coastal ocean waters moved when severe storms come through, like hurricanes. And so, uh, as we talked about earlier, that is what uh, causes storm surge. And so, uh, our modeling activities try to get better representations of coastal areas. And, and again, if you live along most coastal areas, but North Carolina in particular, you you take a you look at it and you see how geometrically complex it is. <laughs> and and so, um, a lot of the challenges is how is how do you get your models to at, you know, faithfully represent the complexity of the of the layout of the shoreline, but also of the topography, um, because high areas block storm surge, low areas uh, allow it to propagate. And so, if you really want to find out what areas it's going to go into, who's going to get flooded, and 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 under what conditions, you have to represent and and accurately represent the that complexity. And so uh, that's really uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing here at UNC. And again, uh, in my lab is to, is to try to advance our ability to use computer models to, uh, to represent those. Mm-hmm. Um, those computer models get used, uh, and, and in particular, the one that, that I've worked on for a couple of decades now, uh, get used for a variety of, of purposes. Um, the one purpose that they get used for is to try to help define what the hazard level is in any coastal area. So what is, uh, say, in any given year, what if, if there's a 1% chance of, of, of getting flooded, what, what does that look like? Where, what areas would be flooded? How deep would it be? Uh, and, and things like that. So, um, so at various sorts of hazard levels, probabilities, if you will, uh, and sometimes we convert that into return periods. So sometimes we call the 1% chance the 100-year event. Mm, right. uh, and so we just flip it upside down. It, it can be a little bit misleading because it implies if you have one this year, you've got another 99 years before it's going to happen again, <laughs> and it doesn't work that way. Uh, so it's in any given year, it's a 1% chance of happening. So. But the point is, and, and you can define, you know, what's the percentage of it happening, you know, a 5% chance of happening in every, any given year or various other levels. But again, um, the, the 1% chance is kind of the benchmark that we use for a lot of decision making. Well, somebody has to draw the maps that, out, that, that lay out what that is and, and what those conditions look like, how deep it's going to be. Well, the computer models that I've developed are, are what FEMA uses. Uh, to, 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 to do that, to delineate that. And they've used them from New York all the way around to Texas. Uh, and so that's one application of our computer models. Uh, another application is for design. You say, okay, pro- the probability is this is what we've got, what we're going to face. What do we do about it? 
And, uh, and so, uh, you know, designers then say, well, if we build a levee or if we build a flood wall, how high would it have to be in order to protect us? And if we build a flood wall here, what might be the consequences somewhere else of holding the water back here and letting it flow to other places? So again, the computer models that we've developed are used extensively by the Army Corps of Engineers and, and a, a number of consulting uh, companies for those types of, of, of calculations. If you go to New Orleans, the, the entire levee system and flood wall system, the protection system around New Orleans was designed using our computer model. That's uh, awesome. You go to Houston Galveston and, and uh, they are still trying to figure out what to do to better protect that area. And they've got um, various uh, options that they're looking at. And those are being evaluated again with our model. Um, after Hurricane Sandy, a lot of work was done in the greater New York, New York area, uh, and, and again, largely done design uh, options looked at with our, uh, with our model. Uh, and then another thing that we do with our model is when an event is, is imminent, and right now uh, Delta is, looks like, Hurricane Delta looks like it's imminent uh, in the greater New Orleans, southern Louisiana area, we will run our model uh, in real time. Uh, to try to give our best prediction of what is likely to happen in the storm surge arena, you know, what, how high is it going to get, what areas are going to flood, what the implications might be uh, in advance of the storm. So we're doing that right now, again, for Hurricane Delta in, uh, along the northern Gulf Coast. Oh, that's great to hear all the applications for that. I, I think, though, often about um, the more midsize or smaller communities along the coast, and are they really looking at this type of information and then making decisions or, or setting policy accordingly? I mean, I, I just see people continuing to flock to the coast and developing on the coast and as close to the water as you can get. That's where everybody wants to be. Um, and so it, it's an interesting dilemma, I guess. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I, I live in a coastal county. You live in a coastal county. It's a wonderful place to live. Absolutely. Um, if you look at, at population growth rates, Coastal counties along the U.S. coastal counties are growing at, in fact, in the southeast, along the southeast Atlantic and Gulf, are growing at twice the national population growth rates. People want to live there. Um, some of the best, highest land was developed at first. <laughs> and so the more people come, the more, um, the more housing they need. Um, what's left over is oftentimes the area that, that are at higher, higher risk. Uh, and, and then there needs to be wise decisions made uh, in terms of what areas should or shouldn't be developed and under what circumstances. And of course, um, you know, for coastal counties, development means property tax revenue, which mm. means better services and uh, including schools and, and other uh, uh, you know, civic services. So uh, it's, um, it can be a real conundrum where, how to draw the line and when to draw the line and, uh, and, and how to, how to manage these areas. A lot of pressures. Sure. Little, little bit of a side question. Um, you know, sea level rise is a, is a big factor. Um, land subsidence. I know, you know, I, was, I saw an article recently about the Norfolk area and Virginia, um, how, I mean, they're on the, <clears throat> they're on the forefront of sea level rise, but they also have a land subsidence issue. Um, 
is that is that happening along the lower part of the East Coast um, land subsidence, and does that factor into this equation at all? It it does, and so again to come back to kind of the Gulf Coast with all of the oil extraction that's gone on there, uh, and also uh, water groundwater extraction, mm-hmm. and groundwater has been taken out one to simply drain some of the marshy swampy areas for public health reasons, but also for industrial purposes. Uh, both of those have led to substantial subsidence in those areas. Some of the highest subsidence rates in the United States are, are uh, in southern Louisiana. Uh, and so that's a really big deal. Um, other areas are subsiding more just based on natural tectonic processes, natural uh, earth. Uh, I mean, even dating back to things like the, the, uh, the earth's rebound from when there were glaciers covered mm. these areas that that plays a role in it um along the east coast uh in, in fact in the state of north carolina what you find is the northern part of the state is subsiding a little bit more rapidly than the southern part of the state and so that has to be taken account when you when you think about and in fact and figure sea level rise because it's relative sea level rise is what we care about it's how the sea level is rising compared to the land. So even if the sea level was staying flat, if we were subsiding, we would be having relative sea level rise. Uh, um, and so that's been an issue. It will remain an issue in, in some of the worst, uh, air, you know, the, the areas of worst subsidence. Um, what you're starting to see is as sea level rise begins to accelerate. Um, so sea level is not just rising at a constant rate every year for decades and decades and decades. Uh, It has been slow. It's getting a little faster. And what we really, what what the climate models are really telling us, and we're starting to see the beginning parts of this, is is that as we get out to about the middle of the 21st century, then it's going to start rising even faster and faster. Uh, As that starts to happen, and that's due to melting of glaciers in particular, but as that starts to happen, um, the, the subsidence part of the equation starts to become smaller and smaller in the overall in the overall impact. So um, it has been an issue thus far, even in places like North Carolina and, and as you mentioned, up into Virginia. Um, as time goes on, its contribution to relative sea level rise and, and, and the threat that people have to deal with will, will become smaller as some of these other effects become larger. Well, it seems like a, a state like Florida also is so incredibly vulnerable with how flat they are, basically, and, and a peninsula, yep. and they've got sea level rise and right in that hurricane path, and incredible. Um, yes. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what uh, UNC does to to study hurricanes, you know, really – in real, not in real time, if you will, right? When they're when they're approaching the Carolina coast after they've hit the Carolina coast, what kind of what kind of science you all do, and and how that's helpful? Sure. Um, well, again, my own research uh, involves trying to predict them in advance as they're approaching, and then validation of of how well we did, and then mm-hmm. uh, that in terms feeds into improving the models, and then hopefully those models have uses not only for future individual storms, but again, for future evaluation of risk and and hazards. Uh, That's my particular work area. 
Uh, there are others here at, at UNC that have for years studied what hurricanes do to the water quality that we have in eastern North Carolina. And what you see, particularly with the storms that have a big rainfall associated, associated with them, and this dates back into the 90s of Hurricane Floyd in particular, but some of the more recent ones, Dorian and, and, um, and Matthew, um, they have enormous flush of the land. And so an awful lot of, of, of organic material, leaves and, and, and other things, as well as less desirable man-made wastes of various sorts, flow across the land and into the coastal waters. And they can have an enormous impact on the, the livability of the coastal waters. And we definitely see that in, in some of the northern estuaries, uh, in the Noose River estuary, in the Tar Pamlico uh, estuary that are part of Pamlico Sound and up into Albemarle Sound. The, the, the organic load will come into those areas, be consumed by bacteria, and that depletes all of the oxygen. So those waters become what we call dead zones. They become almost entirely depleted of oxygen and anything that might be living there uh, doesn't have much of a chance. It either has to move or, or it dies. And so uh, we have done a lot of research over the years into the causes of that, the occurrences of that, and the, and the consequences of that in terms of water quality. Um, you also, we, I was, I was going to add, you know, uh, some of that man-made stuff that you mentioned. You've got coal ash ponds in eastern North Carolina. You've got hog, all the hog farms. And so you get a lot of really undesirable stuff that ends up in the, in the coastal waters. I mean, I'm a, I'm a surfer. And so I know that after those storms got to hang tight often, um, you know, with, with Florence, it was not good to get in that water for quite some time until all that stuff worked its way down the rivers and out, uh, out to sea. Yeah. yeah, and you can see plumes of it from satellite imagery mm. that are clear as a bell coming out the, the inlet mouths and, and the river mouths out into the coastal ocean. It's, it, it tends to be a very brown water, not necessarily the brown isn't necessarily pollution. It's just tannic acid um, from the land, but it's, a, but, it, but it's a visual indication of where that water is, is and where it's going and any of the pollution that is in it. And and I don't know to the extent that we have coal ash in eastern North Carolina. We might, but uh, I know that we certainly have hog lagoons and other uh, industrial poultry uh, farms and things that have historically um, run into the water and, and, and just simply run off from fields and things uh, can be problematic in terms of what it brings with it as well. So all of that does impact our, our estuaries first, and then it does make its way offshore and, and again, it, it, it takes weeks to months to, to kind of fully flush that out of the system. And then it takes time after that for the systems to kind of recover uh, and get back into a more normal life cycle. Uh, and so that they're functioning in the way that we like our healthy ecosystems to function. Not as important, but you know those storms blow out the sandbars too. So it, for as a surfer again, I'm like I got to wait for yep. nature to do its thing and rebuild those those sandbars for me. <laughs> well, a lot of that happens in the fair weather months of the summer. So uh, if if you you know so maybe a year or so before some of that starts to come again. Yeah. Um, the areas that we do research is how to better protect the shorelines in particular from just um, erosion. I mean. Uh, and, and, and 
just a little bit, a, a little bit lesser extent, how we might um, mitigate flooding, but particularly shoreline erosion. What what sorts of things can we do to keep that from happening in in the face of these storms? Um, of course, uh, the 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 go-to solution for decades now has been to build bulkheads and and hard structures. Um, those are expensive and they tend to be uh, you know hard to maintain. They're not. They, they, they're not self-healing, that's for sure, when a storm event comes through. And so what we've been trying to look at is whether there are better solutions than that, that maybe uh, take advantage of nature, take advantage of, of, of living shorelines uh, to where we can try to get marshes recreated in areas that, that help protect from erosion. To what extent can we use things like oysters? Uh, oysters are pretty amazing organisms. They clean the, they clean the water. They have a, a hard structure to them. These, they, uh, which, which may help protect the shoreline. They, um, they sequester carbon, which is a good thing from a climate change perspective. And by the way, they can be pretty tasty to eat. <laughs> uh, and so, um, so, you know, work being done in those areas of how to simply work in hand in hand with nature on things that are, are if you can get them started or recreated it, uh, or give them a helping hand, then they'll kind of do some of the work for you and you get additional services out of them as you go. Yeah, I've seen a number of articles recently about uh, artificial concrete reefs and and these kind of structures that are being explored as possibilities to put close to the shore, maybe a little offshore to kind of maybe break up the wave action or something like that. I, I saw stories maybe around of the University of Miami. I just saw one in a a Connecticut community, I think, where they're, you know, exploring with some of these, these things that aren't hardening the actual shoreline, but kind of putting right. some stuff off offshore. Yeah. A uh, variety of engineering solutions of that sort. And, uh, and it, and it makes sense. Uh, waves break. If you're a surfer, waves break when the water gets shallower. Mm-hmm. And so if you can essentially trip the waves and get them to break uh, further offshore, then they dissipate their energy. Uh, further from the shoreline. So those are, you know, there's a variety of, of, of strategies of one sort or another that have been pursued and, and continue to be pursued uh, that, 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 that I think hold promise in, in certain areas. It has something to do with the, the, the you know, the cross shore profile. And uh, if, you know, you can't go too far offshore and put them too deep or otherwise you simply don't get the effect that you're looking for. So sure. in certain areas, I think that they have, they're viable, and what they, you know, what they they try to avoid is putting things that are right against the shoreline that are hardened, because then water just simply wants to erode around those, mm. and actually it, it, it tends to to cause the shorelines to erode more quickly than they would have otherwise, in some cases. And what you really want to try to do is try to avoid putting things that are perpendicular to the shoreline, that that start to stop the natural transport of sediment and sand along the shoreline. Those are things that become more and more uh, challenging to maintain and, and they have you know more significant consequences, particularly on the downdrift side. So yeah. they've, they've been used throughout time and, and we continue to look at them, particularly for stabilizing inlets these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, the more we can get away from disrupting the longshore transport of sediment, the, the better, the, the more we're working within our natural system. 
Yeah. Um, I, I guess I should have asked this question toward the beginning, but it's kind of the last one I have is 2020. It's a crazy year anyway. <laughs> it was for it was for the hurricane season. Um, was this an anomaly or is this a, you know, a precursor of things to come as far as the amount of activity that we see in the Atlantic? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a historical anomaly for sure, uh, at least in, in sort of our recorded time period. Um, this is up there of the most active year we've ever had, uh, if not at this point, the absolute most active year. Uh, the year that Katrina came through, we got into uh, into the Greek letters as well. Uh, and so, um, but, but in, in, you know, in certainly the times that, that most people have been alive for, those are, are the two years from a, from a total activity perspective. Um, so, but, but I think we have to expect this to occur more in the future. Again, the, the surface of the ocean, the energy for these storms is increasing with climate change. It's getting warmer. We see that. We uh, the atmosphere is getting warmer. We, we simply are seeing that consistently uh, in the data. And so the energy for these storms is, is, is ever increasing. Um, now, what you typically see, why, why is it, why, if that's the case, why don't we see 20 or 30 storms every year? Mm. Well, the large scale meteorological conditions have to be favorable for these storms to actually form. They can, they can start but, but unless the, the conditions are favorable, they won't actually persist. They won't actually get far enough along to where they can then self-sustain themselves. Those are large-scale, uh, again, meteorological patterns. The single most, uh, sig- the, the single most significant aspect of, of determining those large-scale patterns is what we call the El Nino cycle, the El Nino-La Nina cycle. And that actually is largely in the Pacific Ocean. And so when that sets itself up in an El Nino uh, type of situation, then you get winds that extend into the Atlantic Basin, and those winds tend to tear the storms apart. They create what we call wind shear. And so those conditions are very unfavorable for storm formation. Doesn't mean they can't form at all, but it means that a lot of the storms uh, that, that otherwise might form get essentially torn apart before they get going. Um, when you get into the opposite situation of La Nina, or just simply a neutral condition or a La Nina condition, that's when these storms fueled by the warm water can get started and really start to go to town. And that's what we see this year. Uh, we see a neutral to, to slightly La Nina type uh, scenario, and that's what has really conspired to bring us to this um, um, situation of having so many storms. Uh, in the basin. And and again, with a warm ocean, uh, it's kind of rolling the dice. Every few years, we're going to get into a situation where we have less atmospheric conditions that are tearing these storms apart. So I think we've got to be prepared for it. And, you know, NOAA, the, the, the groups that, that, that look forward, particularly early in the calendar year and make projections for uh, hurricane season, saw this coming. Uh, they didn't see it being quite as as significant as it was uh, initially, but as we rolled into May timeframe, uh, it, it you know they really started to see and and so they were in the 25, 26 named storms uh, at that point in terms of their predictions, and so pretty much right on. 
and so I don't think it was a surprise. Uh, and that can, we know enough about these storms to know that this is probably the new normal. Yeah. Well, let's hope at least for the rest of this fall that you and I here in North Carolina stay calm. <laughs> it's been a, it's been exactly. enough of a year this year, that's for sure. Um, Dr. Ludic, I thank you so much for your time and the information. Really interesting stuff. So thanks a ton. Sure, my pleasure. Uh, I enjoy talking to you. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.